God's plan for the renewal of heaven and earth is much like his plan described in the Old Testament. He is a refining fire that gives way to new growth, like in Isaiah 6.13 and elsewhere. This is how God's people overcome while under attack. Well, good morning. Would you turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2? You'll see it on the screen. And I would like for us to read from this passage before I preach that passage. Those of you who are able to and can, would you please stand with me for the reading of God's word? Revelation chapter 2. We're starting in verse 18. This is the word of the Lord. To the angel of the church in Thyatira write, The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love, and faith, and service, and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality, to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works." But to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold to this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father." And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Lord, for your word, for being a God who speaks to us. In love, you tell us the truth. In love, you kill lies. In love, you rebuke and correct. You warn out of love. You call us to repentance because you love us. Your holy word says that you as Father, you discipline those you love. But those who do not, you, you have punishment. Lord, I, I pray that you would give us discipline this morning, correction, even, even sweet rebuke, as sharp as it might need to be. Lord, I pray that you would treat us as your children, which you have called us. Bless the preaching of your word, Lord. We call on your help. Amen. Have a seat, please. Well, we are in our mini sermon series of seven weeks on the seven letters to the churches in Turkey. The Lord Jesus has shown up on the island of Patmos to speak to his apostle John. And within the greater book, the greater letter of Revelation, he's giving seven minor letters, seven letters to individual churches in this modern day area that we call Turkey. 
And I want to remind you of a pattern, of a thing that's consistent between all of these letters. It's three statements, that these letters were penned for them, and they were preserved for us. So we said, one of the things we said at the outset of this sermon series is that if we want to understand what Revelation means to us today, then we're going to have to understand what it meant for Christians back then. And so they, these letters literally were penned. This letter was written to the church in Pergamum based off of circumstances they found themselves in, but they were preserved for us to learn from as well. Second, the letters contain a pattern for all churches. And so there is not only, um, we, we not only find a, a communion and circumstance with these churches from 2,000 years ago, but we also see a pattern, a pattern for trust and obedience for us as Christians to follow. So where the Lord Jesus calls this church to repent or that church to be encouraged, for this church to hold fast and this church to warm up or cool down, either way, do something, that's a pattern for us to take into account and not simply or merely consider, but also to trust and obey. And finally, these letters, they hold promises to those who prevail. These are promises to those who overcome the circumstance of the fallen world they find themselves in. For those who would overcome the deceit, the lies, the temptation of the evil one, Satan. And they are promises for those who overcome the sinful flesh, the sinful man, the sinful woman that you were born into and now have been born again out of. And so there are promises, there are rewards, there are guarantees that the Lord gives to those who will keep and hear his word here in Revelation. So what's the difference between Pergamum and Thyatira? Last, last week, I, I preached on the letter to uh, the church in Pergamum. And now as I read Thyatira, which by the way, just a little bit behind, you get to see behind the curtain for me as a pastor, uh, I have been banging my head against my Bible, against my desk, against anything uh, that I could find for the last week and a half as I study the church in Thyatira. Commentary after commentary after commentary, preacher after preacher, theologian after theologian, a lot, of, a lot of these wise men and women are all, a lot of them are just simply going, uh, uh, right? The word of God is not always easy to understand. Some scripture is easier to understand than others. And so I, as I read this, I was like, man, there seemed, am I just supposed to preach the same sermon that I preached last week? Because Pergamum and Thyatira, Thyatira seem to have some similar things from the Lord here. So let me, let me do a little of that work with you and before you. Pergamum is, is if I was going to analogize it to a modern day city, I would say Pergamum would be like Los Angeles, California. Right? I mentioned last week that you can, you can take a tour and see all the famous, important people uh, of their homes in Los Angeles and in Pergamum. You could take those sort of tours and see all the famous and most important uh, palaces and temples to paganism and, and other gods. It was, a, it was a cultural center of arts, celebrities, philosophy, and religion. Thyatira is the first city so far, of all the first three or four cities that we've looked at, it's the first town that doesn't really have all that much special about it. it Thyatira would be like any town USA. It would be like McDonough. It'd be Macon. I mean, the people there like it, but 
it's, no, it's not a place that, it's not like a travel destination. And if you like Macon, you're like, oh, we love Macon. Well, McDonough, you know, McDonough's like, like the best kept secret on the south side, whatever the city slogan is. Sure, love McDonough. But when compared to New York or Los Angeles or Paris or London or Tokyo, I mean, it's, it's any town USA. Further to contrast what we saw last week with the, with the city of Pergamum and the, and the church that was there, contrasting that with Thyatira, Pergamum's problem was the tolerance of heresy. Pergamum's tolerance of heresy was their problem. And they, they engaged in tolerance through silence. They, had, they were tolerating the threat of Balaam, the teaching of Balaam. And, and you can go back and listen to that sermon from last week. I, I don't have enough time to, to uh, review that. But in Pergamum, the threat was from outside. They were in a large city, an influential city, and the threat was that the problem for, that, uh, for Pergamum last week was, I said, it's not that Pergamum was actually in a wicked city. The problem was the wicked city was getting into the church through heresy, through false belief. So Pergamum had a problem with tolerating heresy through silence, and the threat was from the outside. They were tolerating a message. In Thyatira... Their tolerance is a full-out, full-blown sin. They're not simply handing themselves over or tolerating heresy, wrong teaching. They were tolerating through participation. Not merely silence, but permission. They were tolerating actual sin. Where Pergamum was tolerating a message, Thyatira, that church was, they were tolerating an actual person in the church. So Pergamum's problem was a threat from the outside, and in Thyatira, the church was facing a threat from within the church. With that said, that's all the introduction of, the, of, of that that I want to get into. There's not much to say about Thyatira, right? I've spent a, a, a lot of time the last few weeks going over what the culture and society and all the outside influences of the city were in the last few chapters, because that's, that's what the circumstance was. Here in Thyatira, the city is not the condition. The city is not the challenge. It's within the church. So let us take a look at verse 18 and get into this. To the angel of the church in Thyatira, I want you to write the words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. This goes back to chapter 1 of Revelation where Jesus reveals himself, high Christology, a uh, vivid, in some ways terrifying, in some ways spectacular, an awesome, majestic appearance and display, demonstration of Jesus in his glory. So this letter is being delivered by Jesus, who has flaming eyes and metal feet, these eyes that pierce to the soul, the eyes of God who... I've mentioned this several times, of Hebrews 4. This is the Hebrews 4 eyes of God that can see every creature, every human being, heart, mind, soul, laid open and born open like a book, reading and understanding the, uh, the ideas, the feelings, and even the motivations that even in ourselves we can't fully see. And he sees. He sees. There is no covering up. There is no, it's, it's not like Superman with lead. It's the one thing he can't see through. There is no way to hide from this sort of God. He has flaming eyes and metal feet, which identify judgment. This letter contains some of the sternest and most dire judgment and warning. This is a serious, serious letter. Now, Jesus is not joking around in any of these letters, but you can almost imagine Jesus, if he needed to wear glasses, he doesn't. 
But if he needed to wear glasses, he would turn to the church in Pergamum at the table and then go, okay, we need to talk, right? Let's get really super serious. Verse 19, I know your works, your love and faith and service, your patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. He's a good God. He's a good judge. He's a good king. He, he's not jumping in to go, uh, we need to get serious. Y'all are scumbags. And he goes, listen, I love you. I see, of all the things I see, I don't see only sin. Remember, this was written to the angel of the church in Thyatira. So whether that means a literal angel or whether that means to the corporate spiritual identity of the group itself, either way, he's saying this. This letter is written to the actual believers, the true believers within this church. And I'm going to specify that. See, the Lord Jesus could write a letter to this church, not just simply any church. He could, but he could write a letter to this church. But when he's speaking to the brothers, when he's speaking to the sisters, the Lord Jesus knows who are the Christians. He knows who are re- who, those, those who are really his, those who are truly regenerated and born again and not merely, merely religious. He knows those whom he has loved and caused to love him back and those who are merely using him because he's useful. He's saying this to the actual true Christians. And by the way, he doesn't have the same problem with these these folks as as he had with the Ephesians. He says that their latter works are exceeding their first. They still have a deep-seated belief in and love for Jesus. He says, says, "I, I see your love, faith, service, your patient endurance. That's four legs to a good, sturdy stool. You can sit on that. He says, listen, I I love you. I see this. This is a letter of judgment, and I don't want to judge the church. I'm looking to discipline the church. But that means in order to discipline, to purify my church there, some judgment will be brought about. So for those of you who are true, those of you who believe in me and love me and obey me because I really have loved you first, I want to talk to you. Verse 20, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess. She's teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality, to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works, works that they themselves were doing, but they were doing Her works, works that she had led them and taught them. She had literally made disciples of them, of the way she lived, of the way she believed. Verse 23, and I will strike her children dead. 99% of the people that I'm looking at to gain some wisdom and insight on the scriptures here, 99% of them are going, "Uh, the Lord has sovereign authority to do as he pleases. Uh, And so should the Lord decide to kill any human being regardless of age, he does no injustice. God does no injustice to anyone, whether it's your dear elderly grandma or your child. With that said, it seems that this is language going, I'll strike her children dead, her followers, those that she has begotten, those that she has raised up and discipled. You see, God identifies himself as a father, 
He identifies himself as a father, and he sends his son to become our older brother, to come and find us who are wayward, for those of us who are prodigal, and he sends the big brother out where in the scriptures, in the, in the, in the parable of Jesus, which he talks about the prodigal son, there's two prodigal sons, the one that goes way, 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 wayward, right? And the brother who doesn't love his brother and doesn't even love his dad, and he doesn't go and do his duty to bring his brother back. God the Father is the good father, and he sends his son, Jesus, out as the better older brother to come and bring us back. The big idea here is God identifies himself as father. I want you to understand something. There's something very interesting and very dark and frightening and worrisome that happens when you read the account of Jesus in the desert during his temptation. I want you to understand something that Satan is trying to do in the desert where Jesus has fasted for 40 days. He's been apart from anyone else who's just been with his father in the desert. And when, when Satan tempts Jesus, do you, do you understand what Satan's trying to do? He's trying to adopt Jesus. He's, he's trying to adopt Jesus. He's trying to say, your dad sent you here, what, to suffer? No, no, no. Call your angels. Call your angels. Jump off the top of the, the, the temple and call your angels and, and show that you can't be hurt. I'll, I'll, make, I'll, I'll, call my, I'll call my angels. I'll make sure that no matter what happens, you won't get hurt. Your dad wants to send you here to suffer? I would never do that to you, Jesus. You're hungry. Your dad sent you by the power and authority of the spirit out into the wilderness, drove you into the desert to fast 40 days. You must be hungry. Son, eat something. Eat something. You, you have the authority. I'll tell, I want to, don't you understand your dad gave you authority to turn those rocks into bread? Eat something. Your time of fat, your dad wants you to fast. Your time of fasting's done, buddy. You need to eat something. Your dad says you're, you're supposed to be the king of the universe. Hey, listen, kneel before me like a son to his father, and I'll give you your kingdom now. No suffering, no rejection, no wrath, none of that. Your dad's plan is a bad plan. My plan is to give you all that you deserve right now. God the, God the father is father to his people, and Satan wants to get in the way. He wants to, he wants to adopt you. He wants to beget new sons. And here's, all Satan can do is look at what God does and try to copy it in a lower, shadowy, faded, broken, poison, cursed way, right? Satan is not original. And so for her children to be struck dead, these would be her disciples. These would be her as a mother raising up and adopting people from within the church to be her kids. And Jesus says, I have judgment upon them if they will not repent if they will not receive grace, if they won't turn from their ways and receive grace and forgiveness and trust in me, follow me, believe in me, love me, if they won't do that, then they'll be shown to be no children of mine at all and they will show themselves as true children of hers. This is a deep, deep warning, a deeper warning than even that of Pergamum. And in his grace, Jesus says, yes, he's identified their good works first and then he issues the grievance he has against them. He's gonna call them to repentance and he's going to give them a chance to repent before destruction. This church was tolerant. There's a reference here to a woman named Jezebel. Now, chances are her real name wasn't Jezebel. And here's why. In the Old Testament, there was a woman named Jezebel, and she was, she was one of the queens of Israel. Uh, so you can imagine, and she was really wicked. Like, all Jews would have known, like, who she was. So it's like, you, you wouldn't name your kid Adolf. 
in America, right? We, like, we, you're not, if your last name happens to be Booth, you're not going to name your kid John Wilkes. You're not going to give your kid JW, right? If your last name is Bin Laden, you're not going to name your kid Osama. You, probably, you might even be tempted to change your last name. So chances are that they're not naming any of their kids Jezebel. So this woman's name likely wasn't Jezebel, but she was of that character. She was of that type. And the people of this church would have known who Jesus was speaking about. They permitted the teaching, the practice, the discipleship of the deep things of Satan, specifically sexual immorality and indulging in and dabbling in paganism, which is, in their case, eating food that is being offered to idols and not simply going to the marketplace where the the pagan temple had brought their meat from the worship service to go sell. They were going into the temple worship services and eating food that was sacrificed to idols, which was part of religious and pagan worship in those temples. She was saying, it's totally okay. In fact, you're probably a chump. You're probably an idiot. You're probably one of those fundamentalist, Bible-beating, holy roller religious people. Loosen up, lighten up. It's okay. The deep things of Satan. What is, what's Satan's strategy? Satan's primary strategy is to make us question God's commands and character. When he tries to adopt Jesus, when he tempts him, he's, he's trying to get him, leave your dad and come over to my side. Let, let me be your dad. He's questioning God's command and he questions God's character. That's his argument in Genesis chapter 3 when he comes to Eve. And he says, did, I, did God really say you can't eat from that tree? Did he really say? That, that's Satan's strategy. That is satanic and demonic language. Does God really mean that, though? I mean, is that that, that big of a deal? Don't, don't you think it's a bit of an overreaction that God would condemn the whole human race because of one piece of fruit? What a wild overreaction. That's the, that's the influence and strategy of Satan is to get us to question God's, not just God's commands, but his character. Is God really good? Can you really trust him? She's doing this through seduction, sexual immorality. Some commentators believe she was, she was likely sleeping with men in the church. Married men, single men, influential men, men who were easily influenced. And she was possibly doing this to influence them, to sway them, possibly even to blackmail them. But she was gaining sexual power over brothers within the church, possibly even encouraging women to do these sorts of things, wife swapping, in intermarriage, sexual relationships, that sort of thing. And she takes the position of prophetess. See, she's not gonna come out fully like, like, Hey, I'm a prostitute. Everyone, let's have a sex party, right? That was likely not how she was going to play this. She was, po she was poising herself as a prophetess, as a holy teacher with insight, spiritual insight. And physical intimacy, physical pleasures in paganism have almost always been linked to an act of worship. It's no longer communion with God. It's a communion with God and man and one another in intermixing, and therefore God is no longer God. Now sexual pleasure is God, right? She takes the position of prophetess. Quite possibly she was an alpha woman, like take charge kind of lady. She had a, probably what people might call sometimes a big personality. And it's, by the way, it's no problem to have a big personality, 
right? Whether you're a man or a woman. It's great to have a big personality, but she probably had a big personality that was not used for righteousness, for holiness, but she was using it for her own gain. And the leaders might have been what I might call today um, evangelifish, right? They were evangelical, but they were evangelifish. They, they had no spine. They didn't stand up to her. I'll explain more about that in a second. What's, what's our modern Jezebel? Whether it's a person in the church or a spirit of this sort of person in the American church, what's our modern Jezebel? It probably has something to do with what we link to the idea of it's the cost of doing business in this world. You see, in Thyatira, it, it was an industrial city. It was blue collar probably. And so in, in this city, just like in a lot of cities, there were guilds. Groups of workers, stonemasons, metal shapers, idol makers, farmers, and, and they would create guilds, groups, organizations like unions that would protect their industry. And if you were a Christian, as we've covered the last few weeks, if you're a Christian who does not bow down to and worship Caesar, the government, and the accepted gods of your culture, then these guilds weren't letting you in. And possibly, Possibly, again, this, I, I want to make sure we're clear on what I'm about to say. This is conjecture. I think it's plausible conjecture. But it may very well be that for her own personal gain, she was, she was getting men in the church to participate and gain access, regain access to guilds that they had been previously, previously shut out of by going and engaging in temple worship and doing the things that... Again, it's just the cost of doing business. I, I have spoken to a disturbing number of men who have to have, they, they, they work in the business world. They're project managers. They're uh, salesmen. They're in marketing. They, they work with their company's clients, and they're given a budget. They're given money from the company to, to wine and dine their clients, to wine and dine prospective customers. And it's a disturbing number of men, even some of them who are Christian, who have been troubled by and yet not troubled enough that part of what their clients expect of them is that we need to go to expensive dinners, get wasted drinking booze, maybe engage in some, some substances, and then we're going to go to nefarious places where women take their clothes off. Women and men take their clothes off. Perhaps the client expects that you, with the company money, will, on the down low, get for them a woman or some company for the evening. It's just part of doing business. And the Christian man might go, I, I hate this, and I know this is not what the Lord wants, but this is my job. And if I don't do these things, I won't get the client, and therefore I won't keep my job. Possibly this is what some of the businessmen in the church faced. And Jezebel was offering a way around the trial and tribulation they were facing, the exclusion from the marketplace they were facing because of their loyalty to Jesus. This woman is sort of an anti-Lydia. If you don't know who Lydia is, she was one of the first members of the church in... Anyone? Where? Nope. You know why I'm asking? Because I totally forgot. Okay, I'm kidding. Um, in Philippi, she's one of the first members of the church. She's a seller of purple goods. And, and she was a godly woman who opened up her home 
to the church. It was the first meeting place that they had. Perhaps this Jezebel is sort of an anti-Lydia, a businesswoman in the church who's trying to get ahead, and she's dragging brothers and sisters into the church into sin with her, as opposed to what Lydia did, which was give away her wealth to the church for holiness and righteousness and for the salvation of those unto Jesus Christ. She's, it appears that she has the authority and the power to bestow authority and power. She has influence. And perhaps this church is not stepping up to stop her and her followers because, quite frankly, the, the squeeze just ain't worth the juice. Perhaps this church is failing to stand up and stop her, to intervene, to warn her, correct her, and those that are following her because it's just not worth the trouble. And if you know that person in your family or workplace or even in your church, they hold everyone around them hostage emotionally. They, they have the sort of personality, the sort of influence, the sort of attitude that everyone needs to walk on eggshells. Everyone has to watch and mind their P's and Q's. And if you even were to hint toward the idea that they might need to improve or change, they might have done something wrong, said something wrong, they might need to be corrected, they might need to modify what they're saying or how they're acting, they're like a bomb with a short fuse. And it's just not worth it to try to defuse the bomb because it takes a lot of time and you don't want to cut the wrong wire. And because they're a bomb, not only would you get blown up, but everyone around them suffers. You know that person? Person with the short fuse and they're the bomb and everyone has to be super and extremely mindful around them. So it, it seems to be tempting, it seems to be actually wisdom that we should keep quiet and tolerate their sin, tolerate their bad activity. And it seems like an acceptable trade-off. So we we can just keep the peace. But there is no peace at all. It's not real peace because no one around them is at peace. Everyone's on their tippy toes. Everyone is on their edge. Everyone, mm, we're not sure what's going to happen. It's no real peace. We're just pushing off the real battle, the real moment for later. We're delaying the inevitable. And especially if this person is a person that despite their bad, bad character, their bad personality, their bad action and words, despite that, you still love them and you want to love them. If that person is someone you're supposed to love, they, they can either be confronted in love with the urge to repent, reconcile, and be restored by those who love them and are seeking their discipline, or else at some point, judgment shows up. There's a difference, isn't there, between discipline and judgment, discipline and punishment, See, when you, when, you got, when you got people you're in charge of, when you're a leader, when you're a mom, a dad, you discipline those you, those you love. So when my kids, they, when they're out of step with the gospel or their mom and dad's instructions, right, when they're out of step with that, they get disciplined, which means they might have to experience some sort of pain, some sort of discomfort, but that comes out of love to see them corrected. Um, it's being done for their good, and when it's done, it's done. At the end, on the other side of the discipline, is the hope for growth and greater maturity. Punishment is when someone does wrong and, they're, and you're mad at them. They've wronged you, they owe you, and so now the pain that you bring them, they have to, they have to endure that pain until you're no longer mad at them. That's punishment. Discipline is not, 
you've wronged me, and now you need pain until I'm not mad at you. No, I'm, I might be mad. I'm probably saving my discipline until I'm not mad, and now, out of love, I love you. I'm going to engage in this. Punishment is, I'm very angry with you, and you need to pay. And when I'm done being angry with you, that's when you're done being punished. It's better, it would be better, it would be a real true act of love to this Jezebel for this church to stand up and say, sister, you're wrong. You're acting like no sister at all. You're acting like your father is not our father in heaven, but our original father, Satan. You're acting like you belong to the one who, had, who tried and failed to adopt our Jesus in the desert. And you're wrong. And I know this makes you mad, and I know you're blowing up, and I know you're threatening leaving the church and taking all your money with you. I know you're threatening to break our church in half and start your own church or go to a different church or go to a different temple, and half of our people would go with you. I know that you would po you're possibly going to try to punish us, but we are doing this because we do love you. And because we love you, that love comes from a greater love that we have for Jesus and his bride, and therefore we won't stand we're not, we cannot stand by and tolerate active, ongoing, unrepentant sin besmirching and ruining and poisoning and muddying, sullying the, sullying the name and reputation of Jesus and his wife. I think I see a three-staged kind of biblical echo here in the person, this, this woman that Jesus identifies as Jezebel, sort of a three-staged echo, if I can use that phrase. I've never heard it before. I'm just... Follow along with my imagery. You see, Eve sinned in the garden. Who is the first human sinner? Adam. Adam was the first human sinner. Because where Satan comes and tries to adopt Eve. Your father, God, says you can't eat from that tree? Pfft. If I made a universe, I'd let you eat from any tree. Eve, you're beautiful. God's trying... Your father's trying to keep you from being glorious like him. I can get you that glory, right? Eve sins in the garden because Adam didn't stand up to the attacking lives of Satan. Adam failed his wife. He was passive. He was lazy. He was cowardly. He didn't protect his wife. He sinned first. Is, is Eve responsible for her sin, by the way? Yes, she's absolutely responsible for her sin. But Adam did not help, and he sinned first. Before Eve ever failed, Adam failed. The first casualty of man's sin is woman. I'll tell you this. When the men of the church, when men who claim Jesus to be their king and big brother in God, when men fail to pursue the holiness and the design that God has given to us. The first and most primary sufferers, the first and most primary casualty of our sin is women and children. You can see that not only theologically and biblically, but you can see that in history, where men fail, where the responsibility to walk in God's design for us, women suffer first, and then our kids do. The Jezebel of the Old Testament is the kind of second echo. The Jezebel of the Old Testament had already been adopted by Satan's lies and false gods. She's, she was a woman who had been married. She was a, a pagan woman from a different tribe. And, and the king of Israel at the time, Ahab, married her. 
Ahab, the king of Israel, failed to do anything about her worship, her religious allegiances. He didn't love her. He didn't serve her. He didn't call her to put away her false gods and obey the one true God. And she had a big personality, and she was pretty, and she was physically and sexually potent and attractive and desirable. And so he would do anything to, get, to keep her happy with him. And it turns out that she wrecks the kingdom, causes great destruction and terror and tribulation. In her sin, Jezebel ran amok because in his sin, Ahab ran away. And it caused terrible tragedy, pain, and strife in the kingdom. The third echo is this, Jezebel of Thyatira. The pastors of the church hadn't been loving her, at least not properly. See, they were afraid of her. I'll tell you this, you can't love anyone you're afraid of. You can't love any human being that you're truly afraid of. Not in this way. You can't love people that you think you're better than, and you can't love people that you're afraid of, and they have something to hold over your head to keep you from speaking truth and love, ministering to them, and urging them to walk in holiness, to walk in righteousness. You'll hedge your bets. You'll be a coward. You won't actually act in love. In her sin, she's running around, sleeping around, leading others astray. Because both the pastors and the church, as I covered the same problem in Thyatira, the pastors and the church, the pastors and the brothers, the pastors and the sisters, no one was standing up in love for Jesus, his bride, and their sister to say no. No, by God's grace, stop. Repent. It's not love to tolerate sin. Not in the church. It's not love. It's, it's hate. It's hate to know that a brother or sister is walking in unrepentant sin. To know that they are out of step with the gospel. To, out, to be out of step with God and his design and his commands. To know this and to stand idly by. Pleading like Cain. I don't, I don't want to be in their business. I don't want to be Snoopy Snooperton. I don't want to, I don't want to overstep my, am I, give me a break. Am I my, brother, my brother's keeper? Am I my brother's keeper? Am I my brother's keeper? Yes. Are you your brother's keeper? Yes. Are you your sister's keeper? Yes. So what should Christians tolerate? What should Christians tolerate? This is a, this is a buzzword for the last 10, 15, 20 years. Tolerance. And I don't think many people are using that word the same way. So to quote the great theologian, Inigo Montoya, I do not think that word means what you think it means, right? What should Christians tolerate? Well, first, I want to tell you that we, we should be as tolerant as Jesus as, and as intolerant as Jesus. Inclusivity and exclusivity is a thing that our culture is very big in. It's, it's wrong to be exclusive. It's right to be inclusive. So if you're exclusive, we will now... Exclude you, right? We only want to be ex as exclusive as Jesus is and as inclusive as Jesus is. So Jesus throws the door to the church. He throws the call to repentance, confession, grace, and salvation. The, 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 the door to that is wide open because it's to any human being, great and small, rich or poor, black, white, Whatever color, whatever ethnicity, whatever language, whatever background, no matter the depth 
or the breadth of your sin, come. It's very exclusive. No religion is as, as, as inclusive. No, one, no religion is as inclusive as Christianity is. And yet Jesus is also the most exclusive. Because he says that the door to hell is a very, very wide gate. There's a very, very wide door to that. Why is it wide? Because a lot of people want to go through the wide gate. They want to travel the easy road. My door to salvation is very narrow. See, that it's both wide and narrow. Anyone, anyone, come in. But the door is narrow because he alone is God. He is the way, the truth, the life. And apart from him, no one can come to the Father. So for Christians, how, do, how are we to view tolerance? In light of his letter and his concern and his worry and his judgment over Thyatira, this church, I think it's important for us to consider what should Christians tolerate? First of all, I'll tell you this, legal tolerance. As Christians in modern-day America, we need, to, we need to observe legal tolerance. We ought to tolerate those who disagree with and part ways with us under the law, under our laws. Muslims, Buddhists, atheists, right? People of other persuasions, people of other ideas, people of other philosophies, people of other religions, we ought to stand up for their legal liberties to worship their gods or not because quite happily, by God's grace, we live in a nation, in a society that claims to guarantee the freedom to worship without government interference. So let's go real extreme. Do, do I want a Muslim temple next door? I really don't. And... I would abominate and oppose anyone who would introduce a law in our town that says Muslims can't build their worship place as freely as I and our church could freely build our worship place. See, Christianity isn't a faith for us to impose upon others, especially with the long and strong arm of a government or its legislature. Christianity is not a faith to be imposed. Christianity is a faith which we propose to the world. To try to legislate the Christian faith or use the legal system to place Christianity in prominence or authority would be out of step with how the Lord speaks for us in the Bible. And indeed, it's out of pattern with the church in history. What about the kingdom? It's on its way. The only person with the authority, the only person who will do it rightly to institute his kingdom not only spiritually but legally, is the Lord himself. We are called to live in this world and see that as much as our society and our government will tolerate and provide freedom for every person to make their decisions, the very kind of freedom that we all want to enjoy, we ought to, in equality, equanimity, kindness, we ought to see tolerance legislatively, legally, for others. To see, you see, that tolerance doesn't equal agreement or affirmation. Second one, social tolerance. Jesus says we're to love our neighbors and befriend them. What's one of Jesus' nicknames from his opponents? Jesus is the friend of sinners. The friend of sinners. We, we see Jesus with prostitutes and tax collectors and drunkards. They call Jesus a drunkard. Why? He was always hanging out with well, not always, but he was often seen hanging out with drunkards. Now, we don't see Jesus doing what they do. 
So Jesus is not going to the places where ladies take off their clothes. See, he's not going to do ministry at the strip club, right? But he is befriending and he is speaking with and he's trying to love with the truth ladies who have just gotten off their job and they got their stacks of ones and they're counting them, right? He's talking to them outside. He's talking to them on the street. He's talking to them possibly at a home where these ladies, one of these ladies might have been invited to through a mutual friend and Jesus will talk to them. He'll spend time with them. He's not going to affirm what they do or participate in and engage in what they do, but he will be their friend. We see him befriending them and telling them the truth, not blacklisting them, not canceling them, and not exiling them, not, not keeping them far away, but actually inviting them to come and speak with him. You see, if, if Jesus refused to befriend t- sinners, if he refused to tolerate them, he wouldn't have gotten to hang out with anyone because that's all he had. If Jesus is not tolerant of sinners, we don't get Peter, James, John, Andrew, Bartholomew, Judas, not Iscariot, right? We, we, don't, we don't get his earthly mother Mary nor his earthly stepdad Joseph if Jesus does not tolerate sinners. And when we say tolerate, again, we don't mean agree with, affirm with, and participate with. We mean to love and endure patiently. So we're to tolerate and find ways to love, really love non-Christians. And I'm talking, let's go to the extreme. For some of us, let's go to the extreme. We are called to love people of a homosexual, bisexual, pansexual nature. Those who we feel are sorely misled sorely confused, sorely deceived to believe that they can identify and decide as opposed to what God has designed for their gender to be any gender. We are to love them. To love them. To be kind to them. Not affirm, not to participate, but to show kindness, graciousness, We need to be mindful of which way the influence travels. That's all. So I, I, I'm not going to say, so make all of your friends a whole bunch of non-Christians. Uh, and, and so you got a whole bunch of drunkard friends, go to the, go to the bar and, and drink with them all the time and tell them about Jesus. You need to think about which way the influence goes. And you need to think about what kind of environment and what kind of things you're doing that would help or hinder their being called to believe in Jesus. Be careful of which way the influence goes. Some of us do need to delete the names of some folks and numbers from our folks and our cell phones because the influence travels from them to us. And that's dangerous. That's not, it's not healthy. But there are some numbers that we do need to get in our phone because we are called to love and be close to and minister to those people because the influence of the Holy Spirit of Jesus and his word can flow from us to them. Third, we're called to tolerate. We're called to tolerance within the family of God. But what, what I mean is within the church, secondary issues, the, even, even important ones, but secondary issues. I'll name some. Baptism by sprinkling or dunking. What are we? We're dunking people, right? We dunk you, right? Some people, they're sprinkling people. They were predestined by God to be wrong, and we love them, okay? But we love them. It's a secondary issue. It's important. Communion by dunking the bread or taking the the elements separately. Contemporary music (coughs) or traditional music. 
By the way, contemporary music in the church, most churches, is actually music that was popular and cool about 15, 20 years ago. I'm sorry, that's just the way that is, right? Traditional music in the church was popular and, and appropriate. Uh, it was cutting edge 60 years ago, okay? Tattoos or no tattoos, alcohol or not, left behind rapture or the Bible, okay? Sorry, sorry, that probably rubbed someone wrong, wrong way there. KJV, ESV, NIV, the message, boo, right? right? These, these are secondary, very important issues, but we ought to tolerate and be kind. E- even, even as I rebuke myself here from the pulpit to go, we, we probably even need to be thinking about whether or not the person we're speaking with is open to casual, good-natured joking and humor about these things. So I rebuke myself. These are distinctions and differentiations within the church, but they ought, they ought to be tolerated so they don't become divisions that split the church apart. So tolerance for the Christian means accepting the person without affirming any sin. It means accepting and loving the person, wishing and seeking and actively pursuing the good of that person without affirming or participating in their sin. And we know that the current world doesn't define it that way. Regardless of the way the world defines it, that seems to be the pattern that's set out for us in the Bible. Let's walk in that, and if the world still says that's not good enough, that's no news. That's not news. But we cannot tolerate heresy, and we cannot tolerate sin within the church. Outside of the church, we tolerate it while speaking truth in love. Paul says... I think I put it in my notes there at the end. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, he says, you got to purge the evil one within, within you, within the church, those who are sexually immoral, immoral, those who know what God's design and commands are within the church, and they claim Jesus as king and Lord and head in the church, and yet they still disobey him. Those who are getting drunk, those who are gossiping, those who are engaging in sin, and nothing's being done, no, you... You have to tell that person to stop, and if they will not repent, they're showing that they are no true child because they're not listening to their father. So you've got, you've got to stop them. You cannot tolerate it. And Paul addresses, he goes, what about those outside of the church? What do I, what do I have to do with that? The outsider's going to outside. Atheist's going to atheist, right? Hater's going to hate. Potato's going to potate. So the world, who judges the world? Jesus. We are not, as Christians, called to judge the world. We're we're called to prophecy to the world. We're called to tell the world the truth, but we don't sit in judgment of the world. We can't judge the world because, one, we are not over the world. We didn't create it, and the Lord has called us to live in the world, but not be of it. Regardless, we can obey Jesus under this view, but we are to keep our house clean. We're not to tolerate false teachers in the church. We're not to tolerate sin in in the church. And Jesus has given this woman and her followers time to repent. The Lord's described over and over and over again in the Bible as abounding in steadfast love, slow to anger, patient, enduring, and gracious. Even though he has every right, he has every right, God does no injustice to anyone, regardless of his endurance, regardless of whether the fuse on his bomb is short or long, he does no injustice. And he... He has every right to, but he doesn't just zap sinners at the first opportunity. He doesn't just swat you down the minute you do, think, 
feel or say something wrong. No, he's got a long fuse. He's got a long fuse. He's gracious in the time and tolerance that he demonstrates. I woke up myself this morning as a Christian because of God's grace. Otherwise, I would have not woken up because of his justice. By God's grace, I woke up today a Christian. So, to get back to what Jesus tells John to tell Thyatira and therefore us, all the churches will know, all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. I have the eyes of blazing fire. I have the eyes that read men's souls. I know who is with me. I know who is for me. I know why you're doing what you're doing. I can read your motivations. And so some of you Thyatirans may or may not know. You're starting to wonder, be confused about who you can trust and who's really the Christians. Be loving and kind. Call people to repentance. Call yourself to repentance. But don't worry. I do see. And I do know. Perhaps the Thyatiran church has just forgotten that the Lord is a lion. He is a lion. That he's good. That he hates sin and he hates sinners. We've heard that, yes, in our modern day culture. God hates sin, but he loves sinners. It's a strange thing to juxtapose because the scriptures say, God so loved the world, which is full of what? Sinners. And yet the scriptures in multiple places say that God hates sinners. He hates the wicked person. And if you don't like me using that word, I'll choose a different word that the Bible also uses. God abhors sinners. He hates sinners and he loves them. He loves the sinners that he has chosen and loved before the foundations of the world were laid. And even sinners who ultimately will receive judgment in hell, God still loves them too. Because they get born, they breathe, they get, they get the same sort of blood pumping through their veins that you and I do. They eat sandwiches, they get naps, they get married, they watch movies. They get to work jobs. They get to see the sunset and the sunrise. They have their years, however long or short they are. Just like us, God's common grace on sinners is love. That we are saved with salvation that not only comes from the Lord, but that we are saved from the Lord. I think they, they may have lost sight that salvation is not only of the Lord and from the Lord, but it's salvation from the Lord and his anger. You'll see Psalm chapter 2, verse 11 through 12 on the screen. This is a worship song. Serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled. I just thought you just said he's slow to anger. Yeah, he's slow to anger. But once it goes, it's going. His wrath is quickly kindled. Once it's lit, it's going. There's no fear. And if there's no fear of God and his view of sin, then we'll tolerate sin in our brothers and sisters because we don't really believe God cares about that. But if we really believe and, and think that God cares about and hates sin and sinners, then we will aggressively and lovingly and passionately pursue holiness and righteousness in ourselves and for those around us in the church. Verse 24, to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you 
any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. He doesn't give them any other command. To the Christians who have not learned the deep things of Satan, they have not submitted to Jezebel, even though they have not stood up to her, they have, no, they have not stood up to, corrected, called out, rebuked, called to repentance, and restored their fallen brothers and sisters. They have not done that, and that is a failing. That is their own sin. But they are not engaging in it, at least, and they do not like it. They're not really sure what to do. Jesus basically says, hold on tight, because I have to step in. See, last week I said with, with Pergamum, it was, hey, you, you need to clean the house before I come and do it. You, I, either you can do it the way I tell you to do it, or much worse, if you won't do it, I have to come in and do it. And I'm not really sure you're going to like when I come and do it. Here he says, okay, it's past time. It's past time. Now I have to show up. This church possibly is too far gone for the tire tyrants, the faithful ones, to clean up the mess. So in a sense, he's saying, duck and cover, hold on, because I'm about to come in, and the sword that I gave to you to spank people with, with the flat, to swat them in the rear end, now I'm taking that sword from your hand. I have to come in with the pointy end. He'll, he's going to purify his church. It'll be terribly painful and frightening but he's willing to cut out the cancer without killing you. He's willing to cut out the cancer of this church without killing the church. I want you to know that this woman and her followers were probably in the church gathering when this letter was delivered and read by the pastor. She was probably sitting, do you want, do you want to be referenced in the letter from Jesus? Do you want to be referenced in the Bible, like Hyamanus and Alexander, or Ananias and Sapphira, I had to hand those guys over to Satan. They made a shipwreck of their faith. You want to be named in the Bible? Like, depends on how I'm being named. And she was in the congregation. Quite possibly, quite possibly by God's grace, as one more effort to go, yeah, I see you. I see you. And this is what's on its way. I am on the way. And you're in the letter. Repent, turn. Verse 26, the one who conquers and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces. Even as I myself have received authority from my father, I will give him the morning star. So he who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. Here's what the reward is for those who overcome, to those who conquer. Authority, a rod of iron. If you'll handle the authority that I give to you now, the authority to correct and watch over one another, to be intolerant of sin and heresy, to rightly divide the scriptures, to engage in church discipline. If you'll do well with little, then I will give much to you. I'll give much authority. You'll be given the reward of greater authority in my kingdom. And then he says, at the end, he says, I will give him the morning star. Overcomers are promised the bright morning star. Did you know that at one place in the Bible, Satan is called a bright morning star? Satan's called a bright morning star. See, Satan was, it seems, chief among the angels. 
He was the chief among the angels. If the, if the, angel, the angels are not called this, but if the angels could have been part of the family of God, then Satan would have, Satan would have been like this, the son of God to the angels. He would have been the leader of the angels, the one of highest esteem and importance and glory. He was bright. He's an angel of light, beautiful. But he fell into darkness, the greatest of darkness, and he took others with him, much like his daughter Jezebel. He fell into sin, the sin of pride, wanting to be as good as God, to take God's place. At the end of Revelation in chapter 22, Jesus is called the bright morning star. It's very interesting because Satan is called a bright morning star and Jesus is called the bright morning star. Satan wanted to take Jesus' place as the son. If he couldn't do that, he'd try to take the father's place as father to Jesus and that wouldn't work either. The church was in dark times. This church was in dark times. All of these churches were. They'd been counting on the promise of light from Satan, sin, and paganism because they were in dark times and they were suffering and they were tempted to participate and engage in sin, believing that Satan, who is a light, he seems bright and shiny and can make all these promises and guarantees to us. They, they figured it's so dark, maybe we'll go and get some light from him. And Jesus says, hey, make it through the night. Make it through the night. In 1 Peter chapter 1, 8, God's word says, though you, though you haven't seen him, you still love him. Blessed are you. John 20, 29, Jesus says to poor old doubting Thomas who gets a nickname like that. He says, you've seen me and believe. Tell you what, man, blessed are those who have not seen me and yet believe. Thyatira, you have not seen me. You see Jezebel you see the power of Satan. You see the pleasures of sexual immorality. You see the pleasures of pagan worship and being, having full bellies and having the approval and access to your guilds and workplaces and business. You see all that. That's what you see. You see that bright, shining light. You're in darkness. Blessed will you be if in the darkness you'll wait on the real, true sun to rise, the true morning star, the sun itself. Those who stick with me in faith, Trusting and obeying, you're the ones who will see the Son of Man in the heavens and you'll rejoice. The promise to the one who overcomes is to actually have God himself. That's the great blessing. That's the gospel is having God. The gospel is getting God and that's the promise to those who overcome. In the end, no matter what, what is taken from you, what you don't get to enjoy here in this life, you get God. That's the promise of the gospel, especially in the darkest of times. So, verse 29, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches.